And we are starting today talking about the memorial that is in front of the Vancouver Art Gallery. On one side of the gallery, if you've been in that area, you know that there is a display. It is of many pairs of children's shoes. There are stuffed animals and other items that have been placed on the stairs. That display has been there for several months. It was put in that spot after the discovery of what appears to be graves at uh, a First Nations, uh, the site of a former residential school. And what is making news headlines today is what to do with this memorial and whether or not there is a sense of urgency to move the memorial to perhaps make a more permanent site for another memorial. Well, joining me on the line to talk a little bit more about this is Wilson Williams, a Squamish First Nation elected councillor. Wilson, thank you so much for taking some time today. Hot squaw. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about this memorial and and the importance of having a memorial like this in a public space like where it is outside of the art gallery? Yeah, just to go back to that sensitive time of the findings in Kamloops, I think that organically... uh, um, it's not just this memorial that sort of was erected and um, the art gallery in Vancouver, you, you've seen a lot of memorials that sort of uh, paid homage and respect. It also connected not just Indigenous peoples to their lost loved ones, but it created and educated the general public on some of the dark past of, that Canada has with the uh, connection to the residential schools. Right. And, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think for anybody that's walked by or, or taken some time to really look at that memorial and see what has, has been set up, it's, it's very powerful. And, and it's, it is uh, something that, that I think people do spend some time and, and talk to the volunteers and the artists that hold vigil over, over the, the memorial. Can you talk a bit about the items themselves and, and the significance of having shoes and the other items that have been collected and gathered there? Yeah, you know, and and just to educate a little bit, you know, like our Indigenous peoples and families um, always knew what happened, but it was never talked about a lot in in homes. But um, the general public more more so didn't um, were aware of the the dark history with residential schools and really didn't pay attention to it. But I think, you know, in in the significance of what was laid down at some of these uh, memorials is, you know, the shoes or, or, or um, uh, teddy bears and, and so forth. It, it's a significant connection to um, some of our families that sort of make that connection to our lost loved ones um, in hopes over time. And, you know, it'll be reunited with, uh, with our loved ones um, to sort of, it's a symbolism of medicine and, and sort of an, an uneasy an uneasing of that heaviness that uh, not only we carry here and um, that are still living here in the in the world, but also connecting spiritually to our loved ones that were lost to uh, find that peace. And this particular memorial, from what I understand, it was set up by the the artist as well. There are others uh, volunteered and put this together, but it wasn't an initiative, was it, of of the Squamish Nation or First Nations, or was there involvement there? 
On uh, from the outset, no. Like I said, it, it's something I assume that has started organically, like a lot of the memorials across uh, uh, Canada, more so BC, because the findings were in Kamloops. Uh, you know where, but we were never consulted. I, I mean, in a formal way. You know, we've done a lot of things because uh, we're directly impacted here in the Squamish Nation with the uh, St. Paul's Residential School located on a reserve here. That. And we have a Catholic church that's located on reserve as well, where there's two memorials that were erected at this time as well. Um, but we weren't formally contacted or consulted in regards to the one at the art gallery, which sort of took a life on its own. Um, from my understanding, we were never consulted on the beginning or around where um, there was some maybe challenges with the city of Vancouver that weren't uh you know, address, but they came to us after the fact. Um, but we were managing the ones that were on our sites here in North Vancouver, but we were never formally uh, sprung along in regards to the Art Gallery Memorial. All right, and I understand that the Squamish Nation and uh, and some other uh, First Nations, uh, have you been in contact with the, the artist or those behind this memorial uh, in discussions as far as figuring out what to do next? We've had our admin reach out and um, with no really formal response. And then we sent a letter in regards to supporting and uh, working together and to look at how um, we can be involved to help sort of dismantle or move it along kind of thing in a good way and recommending uh, cultural ceremony. And, you know, our, our nations are working together, the host nations with the Slowatoth and the Musqueam and the Squamish and we're ready. We're ready to help out and step in and lead the lead 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 in a way which is comforting and respect to our to our ancestors that um lived on the lands and through the lands in this area as well. Um so we can have find some peace. But at the same time we're looking at um continuing dialogue and working with with the city of Vancouver to look at more of a permanent uh monument as well. And how would that work, do you think, as far as the, the items that are part of this memorial, the shoes and the toys and, and everything that's been collected and has become part of that? How how would that work as far as removing those items and doing that in a way that, that is culturally sensitive that would be acceptable? Yeah, I think we'd find, you know, with with the leadership of the three nations, I think there's there's ways we could, we have common traditions and cultural practices that we can um, recommend and look at uh, a spiritual ceremony where we can send them off in a good way. Um, we do burnings. We do certain specific ceremonies to um, call upon our our loved ones that aren't no longer with us. So that spiritual connection is really deep and um, resonates not just with the three nations, but uh, with a lot of our Indigenous families and uh, nations here. And you mentioned the idea of uh, perhaps making a permanent memorial, a permanent site. Is, is it in its kind of early stages, or do you have any ideas on, on where that might be, what would be a suitable place and what it might look like? Yeah, we're, you know, it's something we want to extend dialogue with, especially with the city of Vancouver to, and then work with, um, we want to, of course, include the artists that were involved with the, the monuments in Vancouver, but our, our three nations are ready 
to lead and, you know, really look at something that's a long-term vision that's uh, not just visual, but it's a, a place for a gathering place for people to find peace, but at the same time, educating themselves on some of this dark history that uh, in Canada here, but also it's part of the reconciliation and, and, and that spirit that carries, you know, rejuvenation and understanding comprehension to help our, their future generations, because it'll be a tool like the one we ha- a monument we have here in North Vancouver is a place of gathering and it's an education, you know, our schools come down and it's part of the curriculum now. And, you know, more so we want to make it a place where we honor our loved ones. And and at this point, then, is there pushback or do you anticipate th- that there is any uh, desire to keep the memorial at the art gallery? Or do you think that there will be consensus as far as finding that way to, to respectfully dismantle it and then look for a, a more permanent option? Yeah, I'm sure we'll find we'll find, a, you know, we'll find a solution here to move forward in a good way. Um, like I said, we were never consulted and then we were leaned on to have some the nations because it's through our traditional territories to have our leaderships come in to help, uh, help this process along, but do it in a good way. And I think that uh, we'll get there. I think it's just hopefully all communications lines are open and it's a two-way street where I know our three nations are talking and the city of Vancouver is, you know, um, has been very easily accessible as well. We just want to make sure we, we do it in a good way where we hold our people up while we do this work because it's very sacred. All right. Wilson, thank you, as always, for coming on the show. And thank you for talking about this with us today. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Jill. Have a good weekend. Well, if you are in favor of progressive punishment for drivers issued speeding tickets, that is perhaps linking the cost of those tickets to their income, you are not alone. It appears more and more Canadians are in favor of this, and that is the finding, one of many findings of a new research poll. And joining us to talk more about this is Mario Canseco, president of Research Co. Mario, thanks for being with us on this Friday. My pleasure, Gerald. Great to be here with you. Uh, This is an interesting one, and I know there's been some talk of it, and it's always a conversation starter. So what did you ask people? Well, I'd like to give a little bit of background first on why we decided to ask a question about this issue. Uh, Timo Salani, the former NHL player, uh, he went back to Finland where they actually have this type of situation in the books He was caught driving his vehicle at 73 kilometers per hour in a zone where he was supposed to go 55. And the way it works with this particular way of issuing speeding tickets is you take into account two factors, the disposable income of the offending driver and how much speed the offending driver went over the limit. Now, at the time of this offense, uh, Salani was making $8 million American uh, playing in the NHL for the San Jose Sharks. So his ticket came in at 39000 U.S. dollars. That is how progressive a <laughs> punishment works in the case of Solani. And we wanted to figure out whether Canadians would be on board with this. And the numbers are, are quite interesting. 65% are supportive of the concept, uh, essentially taking into account your disposable income and just how much speed you went over the limit. Uh, only one in four are dissatisfied with this notion and 11% are undecided. 
Hmm, interesting. I, I guess it, it would. Too, it makes sense that it would be more of a deterrent. That if you had b- a bottomless pit of money, who cares if it's a three hundred dollar fine? But you might care if it was linked to, to that income. Now, were you surprised at all with the responses that you got to this? It was a little bit higher than I thought it was going to be. And what was really interesting is we didn't see a lot of fluctuations on age. I was expecting the over fifty fives maybe to be more upset with the notion of. Uh, doing something like this, the level of support is uh, quite uh, normal in that sense when you look at the three groups. Also, not a lot of changes when it comes to specific regions of the country. Uh, the group that is definitely dissatisfied with this is those who are in the highest income uh, a, a bracket. Uh, 34% of them say, we don't like this idea at all, which is 10 points higher than the national average. So, you know, part of the reason for doing this is we've seen all of those reports on social media from specific uh, police uh, beats and uh, other municipalities um, where it's usually a very large vehicle, a very expensive vehicle, the one that is clogged. So, you know, part of the reason for this is are you going to punish the same way somebody who is taking advantage of the law? Or let's say, for instance, somebody who is delivering something and went over the speed limit for a little bit. So, it seems to be working fine in Finland because they've had it in the books for more than two decades and nobody's actually campaigning uh, it to, to get rid of it. Hmm. And I wonder, too, I don't know if you went into this level of detail, but does it does it get progressively higher as well? If you didn't learn your lesson the first time you got a ticket, if you were a repeat somebody who, who got several tickets? Well, we, what we have seen in Finland and in Switzerland is it definitely serves as a deterrent. Uh, aside from the Solana case, which was widely documented, there has been other moments, you know, people in Finland, somebody who was working for Nokia and was a high-level executive who also had to deal with a six-figure ticket in, in U.S. dollars, similar situation in Switzerland where they have a similar law. So I don't think these guys are going to speed anytime soon when it's definitely going to be something that is detrimental to their pockets. If it's something that is going to set you back $70, $150, $200, depending on the situation, then maybe you'll do it again. Hmm. And did you mentioned the age group as well. Did you look at it then also province by province? Were there any provinces there where it was much more popular or, or ones where yeah, we don't like this idea so much? Well, we seem to be in tune with Quebec here in BC. 69% of British Columbians and Quebecers like the idea of this type of a punishment. Numbers a little bit lower in Ontario, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Lowest in the country in Alberta, but still at 59%. So in Alberta, where they're not particularly happy with this type of situation, you still have a majority who are saying maybe this is the right course of action. And what about income? And you touched on this, but but I'm curious as well if the, the answer changes uh, depending on what your household income is. This is the one moment where everything changed because <laughs> uh, we have a significantly lower level of support for this from people who are living in a household earning more than 100000 dollars a year. Support falls to 58%, which is significantly lower, but opposition goes to 20, to 34%. So that is 10 points higher than the national average when it comes to this. So the group that is going to be more affected by this in case somebody decides to implement it is the one that is not particularly happy uh, if it's in the books. Now, that being said, it's not a level of opposition that is overwhelming. We don't have everybody who's making $100,000 a year saying, no, I want to speed and I want to pay exactly the same as I do now. But they're certainly more resistant to this and certainly more worried about something like this coming into the fold. 
Mm. And uh, I found it interesting, too, that it's not only uh, putting these fines in place based on disposable income of the person being ticketed, but it would also factor in if they don't pay the ticket quickly or how many days the ticket has gone unpaid. Yes, this is something that we wanted to ask, particularly when it comes to speeding, sorry, to a uh, parking tickets issued by municipalities. Uh, and we would take into account disposable income, but also how long you've waited to actually pay something like this. And the level of support is also quite high when it comes to this type of situation. 58% of Canadians believing that this is a good approach for unpaid parking tickets issued by municipalities. This has nothing to do with your parking lots. This is ultimately municipalities that are saying, I'm allowing you to park here. You should be paying this fine. And we have a majority who believe that that should be the case. Now, this is where the numbers change a little bit on a region by region basis. Atlantic Canada is the lowest and also BC a little bit low at 56%. So BC seems to be very welcoming to the notion of the speeding tickets being applied this way. Not so much when it comes to unpaid parking tickets. Hmm, Interesting. Have you asked people about this before as far as that then you're able to compare or is this a new one? No, it's the first time that we ask it. Uh, I was really curious. Even it's an idea that's been dancing in my head for a while. And we've had a, a little bit of more coverage on something like this, particularly because of something that happened in Switzerland. The example of Solani is, is quite classic because he was told, look, you can go to jail for five days and not pay all of this money. But they advised them, if you ever want to seek American citizenship, you don't want to say that you've been in jail. So hmm. this is why he paid the fine. Interesting, indeed. It'll be interesting to see as well if uh, opinions change about this uh, moving forward. Mario, as always, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. My pleasure, Jill. Anytime. That is Mario Canseco. He is the president of Research Co. We usually pause and then go to calls, but we got some callers already on this topic. So let's see what you're saying about this on the open line. Let's go to Dave in Vancouver. Hey, Dave. Hey, how's it going? Very well. What are your thoughts on this, tying a speeding ticket, a traffic ticket to your income? Well, firstly, I'd like to know who commissioned the the survey, because if it's government, it's another way of them just to tax people to death. They want all of our money. So, and then to tie it to people that make more money. So when you get a ticket, now the the courts need to know all of your personal information about how much money you have. And thirdly, it's a two-tiered system. So it's easy to get people that don't have any money to say, get the people that have money. The, the, the guy says it's $100,000 a year. That's, you'd get hammered. That's like a normal household income in Vancouver. That's not rich. No, that's, uh, that's very true. All right, Dave, thanks for that. Appreciate that call. Let's go to Chris in Surrey. Chris, what are your thoughts? Hi. Um, I'm just wondering why they don't base the price of tickets on the value of the car instead of trying to impose or, uh, you know, find out what somebody's worth or how much money they have. Yeah, you could do that. I mean, I drive a, a 2002 Mazda 3, so my ticket would be quite low, I think, if I was ha- if I got one. That's the way it should be. If, you, if you're driving a $400,000 sports car, then obviously you can afford to pay. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Base it on the price.
And if you take the Millennium Line and you go over or near the overpass around the Broadway and Victoria Drive area, perhaps you have seen the giant spider. It is a sculpture of a spider, and it has certainly been generating plenty of attention. It's a piece that was put together by a Montreal artist and put in that spot. It was not sanctioned. This was something that just popped up one day. The cap when it was put on social media, it is called time to, or it's called phobia. The caption then is time to face our fears. And a lot of people have been expressing their fear of spiders. Well, we wanted to have a bigger conversation about public art and what happens when something like this pops up. Eric Fredrickson is joining us now, the head of public art and culture services at the city of Vancouver. Eric, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, I know this wasn't something that the city put out and the city sanctioned, but what are your thoughts when we see sculptures, we see pieces of art like this pop up in these very highly visible places? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously famous examples like the uh, the demon of, uh, of Angela Bronco Plaza uh, or the decorations on the signal boxes along the Arbutus Greenway. Um, you know, there, there's there's different things that sort of creep into the landscape from time to time. It's true. And what happens? I know in this case, the city has said that it is going to take the art down. Is that generally what happens when there is unsanctioned artwork that uh, pops up on city property? Yeah, I mean, the, the so the city has a lot of jurisdictions and different, you know, property managers and owners. But typically, you know, if you're managing a major piece of infrastructure, you want anything that's being done to it to have gone through good um, various forms of consultation and engineering and analysis and safety considerations and all those sorts of things. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's probably case by case, depending on what we're talking about, whether it's a, a big sculpture or a bit of paint or, you know, someone making a a house for gnomes at the base of a tree in a neighborhood, you know, obviously there's really different levels of, of these sorts of things. Um, so I can't, yeah, I wouldn't say there's like a hard and fast, this is exactly how it works. They're all kind of particular. Right. And that makes sense. Uh, what about the, the amount of attention that this particular sculpture is getting? Uh, have you seen that kind of response in the past? Yeah, certainly. Um, and, you know, it, it depends on, on, who's kind of doing a project and how they're associated with, you know, other folks and what their social media presence is and things like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, I, I always track what's going on, on, on Instagram or Twitter. And, um, it's, uh, it, it's always interesting to see how, how people are taking things and then how the people who are doing things sort of, you know, want to amp up the conversation or, or enter into the conversation in different ways. What is it like when when the city does uh, go out and sanction art? That's got to be uh, difficult as well in that or or I guess the goal isn't to please everybody because you're never going to with pieces of art. But but what is that process like? Yeah, that's a thanks. That's a great question. And I mean, if so, if my program, if, if the public art program, which I work on, is commissioning an artist uh, to do a project, there's a lot that we have to do because you know, we're cultural services, we don't own land. Uh, so anything we do is going to have to go through a bunch of city process, uh, as well as potentially like public consultation through panel processes, or through engagement as a commission is starting up. Uh, if a piece, you know, relates to a specific community or story, do an engagement with that community. 
Um, and so most of our projects take some time to come together. And uh, true when a when a partner, a nonprofit organization, or or a, a BIA is trying to do it wants to do something creative in the public realm, there's there's a lot of stages for sure. And and is the goal then to to get that discussion and to have people talking about it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I mean that's that's sort of that's part of it. Part of it is just to make sure that what you're doing makes sense, is sustainable, is safe, uh, you know, can be properly supported by the land that you're trying to place it on, uh, meets code, uh, and then yeah, engagement with community is sort of a, a another part of that. Um, Increasingly, we're trying to do better protocols with with host nations as we think about new projects. Uh, and then to your actual question, sorry, I'll get back to that. The, in terms of communication and like engagement with the public, it's so important to be able to you know have a piece be welcomed appropriately and to give people some sense of 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 what went on to to lead to the project. And so we're trying to. Uh, be good hosts and and bring uh, bring projects into the world in a way that you know people have some some ability to understand what's going on with it. And how important is it? Do you think having pieces of art like this in public that are in busy places or that are that are that are where people will see them and and kind of becoming part of the landscape? Yeah, um, we're always working to try to identify you know what are what are sites of significance to various communities or to the host nations that commissioning could follow along with with our own projects you know a lot of them come through private sector development so they may be on private land but they're still part of the public you know visual landscape or they should be publicly accessible and the idea of trying to to focus art into places where you know that are truly public that are that are real places of gathering and and visibility is, is important as well but you know all of these things are are sort of in play and again, I know that this particular uh, uh, installation, the the spider, which I believe is made of car parts and uh, is assembled uh, of different parts uh, of vehicles, uh, not a sanctioned piece of art, but certainly something that, that people are talking about a lot. Uh, I know it also uh, prompted a discussion that I don't know if you were doing this job in 2014, but it was also in East Vancouver uh, back in 2014, this guerrilla art installation of uh, a statue of uh, Satan that got a lot. Right. Uh, uh, feedback. Do you do you think do the right. those types of things do they encourage more kind of guerrilla art or, or what do they do? Yeah, I mean it's it's always happening. That that site uh, that I was referring to before, the formal name of it is Angelo Bronco um, Plaza uh, next to the Translink line, uh, has had a lot of interventions over the years. Ever since the original statue that was there of Christopher Columbus was removed to the gardens at at uh, Hastings Park. And, uh, you know, it's always interesting, like that, that statue that you referred to was up for, I think, a day before engineering services staff took it down. And it was right before I, I joined the city, or a couple of years before, but um, obviously, everybody still remembers it. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, how things live in memory is as important as, you know, uh, I think with temporary pieces is, uh, is important to remember, like, in that, that piece kind of did what it did and, and was removed quickly, and still everybody remembers it and can refer to it. Right. And, and the, another one that came to mind, just um, thinking about that, was uh, the one, and I think it was part of the, the Biennale, the, um, the boy with the fish that was mm -hmm. proposed to go on uh, the plaza on, on the seawall, kind of over near the Cambry Street Bridge. And another example, I think, too, of, of people get quite passionate when they're responding to art. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's part of what's interesting about it. And, and, you know, opinions are always very varied and we try to track them and hear them all. And also, you know, again, like give support to what what went on to lead to, to this or that project happening, what was being thought about, um, knowing that, you know, art can be divisive and 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 uh, people will love and hate the absolute same thing for you know similar reasons and and it's it's not that there's no explaining it but just you know you can't you can't really predict it and it's always interesting to see it play out all right and it, are you involved then in the, the removal of the spider or is that a different department yeah i'm not because yeah i don't, I don't control infrastructure <laughs> uh so it's a thing that you know involved with uh, what TransLink in the city working together because it's a, it's a structure and um, it's a freight line, it's a transit line, and it's a city overpass. So a bunch of uh, technically minded folks in, in various uh, organizations are, are in discussion about, about what to do next. All right. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. It is a lovely Friday afternoon and we have a special edition talking about food with Richard Wolak, editor and publisher at VancouverFoodster.com, also host of the Van Foodster podcast. Richard, thanks so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, I always love to talk about food on a Friday and in case people are maybe looking for some inspiration for the weekend. And you're talking specifically today about some really great Asian and Latin American foods. Yeah, you know, we've had a lot of great Asian food in Vancouver for many years. So that's no, there's no surprise there. But we're finding a lot now is that are more microcultures kind of popping up. So we've got like northern Vietnamese from a particular area in Vietnam, you've got different things like that happening now, which is great. It's great, like a lot more people are moving here from those particular areas of those countries. So you're seeing a lot more restaurants now popping up that are not the mainstream. I wouldn't say mainstream, but like we've got the Chinese, we've got Japanese, we've got all that. But now there's kind of like more micro culture. So just to give you an idea, like I'm actually doing, uh, we do a bunch of tasting tours. Our company, we do this for 12 years now around Vancouver and all sorts of different ones. And I'm just starting a new series now called. Um, kind of exploring different cultures and we're doing the Asian eats on April 19th. And then we're going to do Latin American eats on May 10th and we'll feature a bunch of restaurants for one night around East Vancouver into downtown. So the first one, like crab hot and I've talked about them before. Uh, they're Northern Vietnamese. They're from a particular area of Vietnam called Hai Phong. And the owner set out to create the food that she grew up on in Vietnam here in Vancouver. So very specific. You've got crab spring rolls, a crab noodle soup. They bring the noodles in from Vietnam because they couldn't find them here in Vancouver. And a Vietnamese hot pot, which is quite different than the other hot pots. So you've got, you've got they're on Kingsway up near, um, kind of near Victoria Drive up there. Um, and then you've got uh, Win Win Chicken. It's a Filipino-style fried chicken. So we've got a lot of fried chicken coming up around the city now. But this is actually Filipino-style. Uh, this is their second location. They're in Vancouver, South, Southwest Marine Drive in Maine. And you'll find, you'll find, of course, fried chicken, but they've also got Filipino-style macaroni, which is kind of that sweet, sweet macaroni, I guess you could call it. People have had that in the past. Uh, so, you, so that's quite something, you know, that's quite different. Those guys are, they're, they're both actually in our, in our Asian Eats um, event coming up. Um, and then Genki Eki, uh, they're Japanese street food. So they're actually located on Broadway, near, near um, Vancouver General Hospital. They're on Broadway, and I guess it's near Heather. And they're doing like a build-your-own-noodle bar, but they've got something called Odin. Now, Odin you don't find very often around Vancouver. They're basically fish cakes, but in different shapes. 
So that's quite interesting. And they've got takoyaki, and it's a Japanese fried snack made with octopus. Hmm. Um, so they, they've and they've been open just not too long. I think they've been less than a year now, and, and you're seeing a lot more interesting because Odin. I've only seen that in one of the restaurants downtown. I've seen it in um, before, but I really don't see that around town much. So that's great to see. And then on Latin American, so what we're seeing now is there's of course a lot a large. Um, number of people moving to Vancouver from Latin America. It's really started by the ESL schools because now the ESL schools has have many students coming in from Brazil, uh, from Mexico, of course, and, and I think that's kind of infiltrating. Like people are are coming here to live now, and the more people come here to live, are starting to open up restaurants and bakeries of their culture that um, they don't see around Vancouver. So that's exciting for us because we're now going to see a lot more things. Um, a lot more food, different kinds of food coming our way than we've had in the past. And I was just in Miami a couple of weeks ago, and I had a chance to try lots of different Latin American food, from Argentinian and Peruvian. Uh, we don't really have that here yet. We've got some, one Peru restaurant, Peruvian restaurant, but two Peruvian restaurants. But I think there'll be more to come from that. I hope there'll be some Argentinian restaurants opening up here soon. But there is now, like Maisel, for example, so they're a Mexican restaurant. They've actually been around the longest of all of these restaurants we're going to talk about today. They're about six years, seven years old now. They're on Main Street and 12th. And they've been doing a phenomenal job with tacos. They make tortillas from scratch right in front of you. Uh, Mole chicken tacos, very good, plantain. And then they have empanadas. Empanadas are not always available, but uh, they do them for special events. They've got delicious tortilla soup horchata and churro so they've they've been doing a really good job more of like a a casual fast casual kind of environment there and then some of the newer ones that have opened up recently is uh union latinos foods it's colombian it's downtown their second location they opened about two years ago now and um, so colombian people haven't really had that much of that in vancouver now but they're doing more traditional they're doing empanadas they do arepas but then they've got these entrees and they're doing quite a selection of different entrees mostly meat oriented um, the grilled chicken there was very good, and uh, it, most of their dishes come with plantain, beans, and rice. They're also open really late at night now. Cocktails, they, I heard they do salsa dancing, free salsa dancing one night, and you can just come in and learn. Um, so they're doing some fun stuff, and they obviously want to keep, you know, to keep the Colombian spirit going. Um, and then we've got Tamale Shop. Now, this is, this is fairly recent. They just opened, and we'll talk about more about them uh, in an upcoming episode, but... Uh, they're on Main Street and, and near Broadway, kind of right around that construction. And uh, it used to be Kafka's Coffee there, and they are doing tamales. Now, the, the owner actually started making tamales during the pandemic, and it wasn't actually even her main business. And it just sort of took off, and, you know, one thing leads to another. And they went to a commissary, and now they actually have their own cafe, making the tamales fresh from scratch right there, savory and sweet. Um, they also do tacos and torta as tortas, and they have a whole bunch of whole bunch more things there and coffees and all that kind of stuff there. So they're at 2525 Main Street. Um, and then there's another, so all these places I've been to, except for this one that I'm just going to talk about. So I've not been to this restaurant yet. It's called Brazilian Cafe and Catering. It's fairly recent opening on Seymour Street downtown across from BCIT. Uh, it's Brazilian. So this is exciting because we have not really had Brazilian food here before. Had a couple restaurants in the east side, a couple restaurants in Burnaby and New Westminster, but nothing really downtown. So they are doing traditional. So you find cheese balls, you find brigadeiro, which is like a large chocolate truffle. Uh, they do something called coxnita, which has savory fillings, and it kind of looks like a drumstick sort of idea. So I'm I'm excited to try this one because this I've not tried yet, and it looks really exciting and, and something different for Vancouver. And then a couple other ones. Uh, this is also fairly new. It's uh, called Takantoto. 
they actually had a uh, have a startup with a, f- a food truck, and from the food truck they have now opened a restaurant on 46th and Fraser, in East Vancouver, and they're doing more like Mexican favorites. So they've got them all. I, I was just in there. I only had one dish. I was in there with a friend. I just had the sopas with chicken. It was very good. My friend had quesadillas, uh, but they also have enchiladas, molletas, burritos, flautas, quesadillas, tacos, and more. So they're really kind of cover the gamut of all the different Mexican favorites. They're open for lunch and dinner. And uh, they've been about two months now, and they're getting a lot of people in there, so it's exciting. And then lastly, La Bakeria. Now, they're actually not a retail storefront bakery. They're a Mexican bakery located in a commissary uh, down on uh, Industrial. Um, The owner told me that they opened a year ago, and just like during the pandemic, and and saw that there was this, that conchas really weren't available in Vancouver. And the woman's from uh, the bakery, she's from Mexico. And she's like, I'm just going to start making conchas. And it took off. And she was making them. And now she's wholesaling them to a lot of different cafes around the city. You can find her her conchas at Tamale Shop on Main Street. And she, I just tried a whole bunch of different ones last week. They've got plain. They've got them filled. Uh, filled, I've never really seen that before. And she said that more and more now in Mexico, they're doing lots of different fillings. So the Oreo was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of fun, you know, fun. But conchas basically a baked bread. Kind of like what the pineapple bun is into the Asian culture, this is into the Mexican culture. And uh, she said that she, she went on vacation now for a couple of weeks to a bit more research in Mexico, but she wants to bring all sorts of different filled conchas to Vancouver. Uh, so commissary-based, though, can, so can the public buy baked items there, or does she sell they to restaurants? order them. They can't, they can't actually just go in and buy it, but they can order them for pickup, or they can go directly to the restaurants that they're now selling to. Hmm, interesting. It's so yeah. great. I mean, the, the food sounds amazing at all of these places, but also so great to see these restaurants that so many of them have only opened up within the last few months. And I know some of them are likely dealing with the Broadway subway construction, but that yeah. they're opening up and still making a go of it. Yeah. And I think there'll be more, I think there's going to be more coming. Like we can start to, because you'll find a lot out in Surrey, you'll find a lot of stuff like that out there, but as far as Vancouver goes, you're now starting to see more and more. So that's good for us. It's exciting. But I also think really that it's the ESL students that have really brought this on. Because without them, we wouldn't have all these different cultures here. So if you're, especially if you're downtown now, you'll see lots of, you'll hear hearing a lot of Spanish, a lot of Portuguese, a lot of Brazilians around. And that just shows like a restaurant that opens up right on Seymour Street to obviously target the Brazilians, the students that are there, was a smart move because obviously that's where all the schools are and that's where all the students are. But it's great for locals, though, like to go and try something new and different. Well, the, yeah, and again, they all sound so great, and what a great mix and uh, different types of food. Richard, thank you so much for, uh, I think, making us all hungry and, and offering some food inspiration on a Friday afternoon. This is so great, so thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome.